The September-October issue of Film Comet is the first of two back-to-back -back issues that ask, what is cinema now? In the new issue, this question is explored in articles ranging from the subtle and marked shift in the vanguard of American acting to the plight of film criticism in the age of social media. Our writers also shine a light on the work of three important filmmakers you may not know, Marin Ade, the magazine's cover star and the director of the revolutionary new German comedy Tony Erdmann, Barry Jenkins, whose soulful drama Moonlight everyone will be talking about this autumn, and Kirsten Johnson, whose singular nonfiction work, Camera Person, is one of the most original visions from an American filmmaker this year. Features in this issue also focus on new work by Ava DuVernay, whose devastating documentary, The 13th, opens this year's New York Film Festival. Pedro Almodovar, Julieta, and Bertrand Tavernier, all part of the special NYFF 54 section, as well as the great American director, Charles Burnett, on the occasion of a new restoration of his film, To Sleep With Anger. Coinciding with the new look and logo of the magazine is the introduction of new, reoccurring columns, which will look at film from a variety of angles. These include art and craft, written by cinematographers, editors, and other below-the-line craftspeople, inside stories on virtual reality and different forms of immersive new media storytelling, playing along about soundtracks and the use of music in film, finest hour, a close reading of a specific performance by one actor, off the page on the art of book to film adaptation, and scare tactics, appreciations of the craft of horror filmmaking. For this episode of the podcast, we take a closer look at performance scholar Shawnee Enloe's feature on contemporary American movie acting, which makes an argument about a new aesthetic of quality. I was also joined by Ashley Clark, who wrote features on The 13th and To Sleep With Anger. Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name's Violet Luca. I'm the digital editor, and today I'm joined by... Shawnee Enelo. I am a writer and cultural critic, and I'm an assistant professor of English at Fordham University. Ashley Clark, contributor to Film Comment, The Guardian, among others, and programmer of Black Star at the BFI. Thank you both for coming. Shawnee wrote this really lovely essay about contemporary acting, what prestige acting now looks like. The thrust of your argument is getting at how a lot of acting now is very blank and not really emoting or, you know, uh, I'm sure we'll get to this later, uh, not really the sort of Jared Leto method shit that has been kind of run into the ground, let's say, but please. <laughs> yeah, what, I mean, I, I wouldn't so much say it's not acting or even that it's really meant to look like it's not acting, mm. but rather that there's a new aesthetic of what I call recessiveness mm -hmm. um, in acting that simultaneously makes an appeal to the audience and also resists making an appeal. And I think actually the, the appeal and the resistance of that appeal are really linked in these performances. I think there's something going on where actors are aware of why making an appeal might be problematic given a lot of different contemporary realities, actually, I think, but at the same time need to continue to express emotion through performance. So I don't think it's so much that there's really an elimination of expression right. so much as there's a, a kind of tension around expression that's being expressed in these <laughs> in these uh, film performances. Yeah, I, I mean, I wrote down a phrase that I really liked in your piece, okay. which was kind of an ambivalence toward, uh, about, excuse me, 
trustworthiness of emotional expression, which yeah. you linked to kind of a lot of, I suppose, millennial online discourse, you mm. know, yeah. it's kind of post irony. And yeah. there's, you know, a good piece about how, how memes and forms of communication are very different and expression. Uh, I'm going to start completely off brand by talking about TV on in the Film Comment podcast with something like Mr. Robot, mm. which is anchored by the performance of Rami Malek. Yeah. Um, and this TV show is like hyper now. Yeah. It integrates things that are happening into that the narrative, it seems to be kind of last minute rewrites. So, you know, you've got kind of, you know, NSA, Snowden stuff kind of comes into it. And, and it's anchored around a performance, which is incredibly, it's incredibly effective, but it's incredibly one note. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, and mm-hmm. the guy kind of, his face doesn't really move. He just mm-hmm. looks scared or ter- terrified for the mm-hmm. whole thing. And a lot of the work is actually done via voiceover. Mm. And I think it's incredible to, to have a, a leading performance that offers so little and yet mm-hmm. it's still so gripping. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was something that kind of popped into my mind when I was reading your piece. Yeah. I don't watch that show, but his physicality seems totally perfect because he has those giant eyes that are yep. like, it's such a cliche shot where it's like somebody's looking at a screen, but if you have a face like that, it almost becomes compelling mm-hmm. <laughs> as opposed to anyone else just mm-hmm. sort of like looking at a screen, reading text. But anyway. oh, his eyes are incredible. Yeah. And mm-hmm. the way he's mm-hmm. framed and, and his posture, he's mm-hmm. kind of ramrod straight. Hardly mm-hmm. moves. Very tense. Like, yeah, very tense. Yeah. And, and a lot is communicated through complete minimalism and stripping away of external expression. Yeah, yeah it's so interesting, right? Because, I mean, that's a great example because I, I've only seen a sh- few episodes of that show, but from what I understand, it is a lot about surveillance, right? Mm-hmm. Different kinds of digital surveillance and how that affects our emotional lives, right? Is sort of, from what I gather, is one of the key themes of the show. So I think that that's that's totally germane to what I'm talking about, right? I, I think where it differs is there's not so much a sense that emotion itself is something to be avoided, but rather that there's a tension around the relationship between the performance of that emotion in a legible way for an outside observer and a communication of that emotion that goes on in other ways. That these performers are communicating emotion is extremely effective um, it just moves by different codes than the ones of film actors that we might be used to there's a big example you use is jennifer lawrence yeah. in in winter's bone and kind of mm-hmm. connecting that to the time it was made and why it resonated so much yeah and that was to do with the, the interiority of of the performance i think so why did that performance look so not just so compelling but it seemed in a lot of the writing that I was rereading while I was researching this article it seems like people were uh, a lot of critics who responded to Winter's Bone were approaching Lawrence almost like a tonic (laughs) to you know everything else that was um, terrifying about the world right she sort of appeared as this kind of beacon and I think that does have to do with the themes of the film which are about this you know particular brand of like American um, bravery in the face of you know unfeeling forces but I also think that it has something to do with what looked like a certain kind of poise, um, emotional poise amid a destructive um, universe. Do you think because bigness is and and like over emoting and outrageous displays of emotion are mm-hmm. such a huge part of the enjoyment of reality television? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you feel like that style of acting is sort of like because now everyone's like, oh, John Lithgow, he's so much fun to watch, or any of the great hams of you know the past 20 yeah. years like appreciating that yeah. versus what this new generation of actors is really trying to do yeah so is your question do those two things go together yeah. yeah yeah i think i think they do i think they do and of course there's been so much ink spilled and so much said about the effect of reality tv mm-hmm. on how we 
how we understand behavior. Um, but I think that even more important for what I'm talking about is the ways that certain displays of emotion come to look not just fake, but corny or yeah. low class or, you know, the opposite of prestige, mm-hmm. right? That, mm-hmm. that um, to, to use the word that you use in, in describing these actors and these performances. So like what looks, what looks like quality to us in acting, I think has really changed. And I think yeah. that is related to, to a class coding of reality TV, you know, and, right. and the ways that emotional display looks to us. I was watching today, yeah. Portrait of Jason the other day. Which is one of the, you know, it's kind of proto-reality TV in a way, yeah. in that his whole performance, is there's so many layers to the performance you strip away. Yeah. There's a bit right at the end where he's, he gets really histrionic and upset yeah. about something, and you hear Shirley Clark off camera saying, cut this shit out. <laughs> and he just immediately, like like the flick of a switch, he's, okay, he's yeah. fine again. Yeah. And that kind of one moment, I think, mm-hmm. is is very relevant to how we all process today mm. reality TV mm. versus supposed projections of authentic depictions of of emotion Mm. and it's harder to kind of pick them out and when you put that in a fictional context it becomes even more tricky Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so that minimalism I think is a big part of that because it seems more honest yeah you know it's really interesting though because a lot of the these conversations around like fake and real and what looks you know true blurring the lines right exactly what looks true did you know that documentary blurs the lines (laughs) yes i I don't know if you guys have heard about this (laughs) i don't know i don't know if you guys are aware (laughs) but a lot of documentary well right Uh, what i was going to say is what's interesting to me as sort of a historian of acting is that Acting styles are always claiming to represent emotion in more, ever more true and authentic ways, right? right? So, of course, this was the big claim of what we call method acting, right? Which is that through a particular practice of preparing for a role and of actually performing, you know, actors can arrive at a more authentic or true emotional state. It's just interesting to note the ways that uh, what looks real to us completely change based on context. What's around us in terms of politics and culture, and but also, I think, you know, more specifically what's around us in terms of other media, mm-hmm. you know, how does um, particular forms of acting, in this case, right, we're talking about film acting, adjust alongside and in dialogue with other kinds of performance that are prevalent in different forms of media. We're also in the age of kind of turbo parody, with yeah. things like super deluxe and, mm-hmm. you know, super cuts and things like that, where very quickly methods of, of performance are, you know, become the target mm. of humor and mm. that can happen overnight. Yeah. So I think maybe certain styles of acting in the past had a, a longer, longer mm-hmm. time to settle mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it was not that. Mm-hmm. Well, that's true of so many things where it's like, yeah. to quote Neon Indian, uh, <laughs> you know, like it's a blogger that assigns a name to a, a musical movement instead of like an actual group of people getting together now. Chill like, waves, Neon Indian. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. May he reject that title forever. (laughs) Good old Alan. Anyway, I think also a big change that's happened maybe over the past 40 years. Mm -hmm. This obviously happened in like classical Hollywood as well, but sort of the turn away from actors actually studying acting, Mm -hmm. you know, like as as opposed to like working through like a casting agency Mm -hmm. and sort of rising through the ranks that way. Because now I mean, I remember reading an interview with uh, I think it was James Brooks few years ago where he was talking about like well you know I used to be able to talk with actors about where they studied and like Mm -hmm. what sort of like approach he used and it's like now it's like well I really didn't you know Mm. I just I look hot so I got cast (laughs) and I got cast again and again and again so yeah and so so are you are you asking about if that's a historical shift that we see yeah I mean do you think that's sort of infecting this change too in some way or is it just 
we're just more aware of this. Right. I, I mean, you know, that's a good question. There's always been, from what I understand in American film acting in particular, but also I would say probably another uh, national cinemas too, attention around professionalization, right? Mm-hmm. Like is amateur a better film actor because, you know, she or he will do less and therefore can be better manipulated by the director, et cetera, et cetera, you know? And of course, famously, you know, new wave directors didn't want to use professional actors, you know, mm-hmm. because they found an, a different form of authenticity could be received by non-professionals. It's interesting to think about this question in terms of the rise and perhaps fall of method acting because mm-hmm. of course method acting came into or, or shall we say method acting came into the public consciousness through the actor's studio right. and other training centers where different teachers like Sanford Meisner and Stella Adler were teaching what they uh, understood as a form of realist acting or, or their their acting methods. Those rose to prominence in what's often called the age of the expert, right? Mm -hmm. So in the 50s, uh, you know, this is when we see not only a rise of professionalization as not limited to traditional disciplines, but the idea that you could professionalize in almost anything that, you know, comes to us from the 50s. And so, of course, being a professional actor is becomes important in an age when you're supposed to be a professional anything. It would be interesting. I haven't thought too much about this, but it would be interesting to consider that in light of our new, I don't know, flexible economy or like yeah. freelance culture or like temp gig. culture or whatever yeah, you want to call it. Gig culture, right? Yeah. The gig economy or, and also with like the rise of what some people call immaterial or effective labor. You know, I think that's like really interesting. That's something I'm working on now, like trying to think about how acting styles change in, in relation to this new phenomenon in the, of the post-industrial economy, right, where many people have theorized the lines between performing a role and, and working a job become ever more blurred. Yeah. So that's another way to look at this question of professionalization, oh, which is really fascinating. Absolutely. I mean, I, it's weird that the gig economy, because anyone can be potentially reviewed for their performance, mm. now it encourages, mm. it totally changes, or maybe it doesn't totally change the way people interact with each other because mm-hmm. now it's like even we can be reviewed on this uh, on this podcast exactly indeed five stars hopefully <laughs> <laughs> we will be <laughs> but, yeah I mean but it's like really if those reviews are so dependent on future income so mm-hmm. it's like mm-hmm. in the past you could be a totally shitty taxi driver mm-hmm. and still make it mm-hmm. now if you drive an Uber you have to like offer the mints you have to you know make sure the car is clean you can't sexually harass whoever you're driving around like there are repercussions for your actions in ways that they weren't before Mm -hmm. and it Mm -hmm. changes the interaction and Mm -hmm. i mean this this was always sort of prevalent in um waitressing or Mm -hmm. being a waiter Mm -hmm. in the u.s but now it's spread and so it's definitely changing things and again like how earnest someone is you know what that means is changing yeah i just wanted to go back to the kind of professionalization question mm-hmm. i've been uh, researching the last 10 years kind of massive boom of black actors from britain mm. and, and actors in general from britain in fact mm-hmm. it's not just black actors coming to america and taking lots of really kind of major roles in film and, and television mm-hmm. look at someone like david ayelowo who's played yeah. dr martin luther king he's played a civil war soldier he's played a civil rights preacher in the help he's played this incredible range of american historical roles yeah right. um, i don't know how americans feel about that but a lot of that has to do with this perception and reality of British actors being very well trained, going mm-hmm. to RADA, yeah. you know, and having that kind of, it comes down to an attitude and I think mm. a kind of level of preparation that perhaps American actors are said not to possess. Mm. And, and that's something that I find really interesting in terms of 
actors we see popping up in, in, in American cinema. Mm-hmm. Could you sort of define that difference between like method preparation versus like that Rada style preparation? Mm. Well, method goes more kind of goes back to psychology, doesn't it? Right. I think some forms of method. Some, yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's just a kind of a discipline and, and stage training, and uh, you know, a lot of obviously a lot of Shakespeare, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> what's re- classical stuff. Yeah. What's really interesting though, actually is that I've heard that actually at a lot of these British schools, what they are practicing is a form of Stanislavski-based acting, which is you know, method acting comes from Konstantin Stanislavski. They're all getting really fat, like Robert De Niro. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's Punching like walls. you know, that's yeah. a bastardization of Stanislavski <laughs> that has its own interesting yeah. history, right? But what what I've heard is actually the two systems of training actors used to be really far apart right but now have actually become very that's close. interesting yeah yeah so so i don't know if it's too glib to say is it just americans continued fetishization of you know british people so. are you smarter get these, and better you, you, you get these british people popping up all over the the it's american true. media yeah. just, uh... i know <laughs> do 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 <laughs> Okay, so of course there's a lot to say about this in terms of racial politics too, right? Yeah. Like, Because yes. oh, yeah. it's not just British actors, it's specifically black British actors who are playing African-Americans, you know? So yeah. there's right. a complicated um, well, negotiation there. Well, there's no opportunities yeah. in, um, in England. I but, mean, yeah. but also so much of that comes back to The Wire, where it's like mm-hmm. that really set the tone for like the way that that type of space was shot and like pulling from those same actors again, that same group of actors again and again and again. And the point where I remember turning on the TV and seeing CBS's Sherlock starring Lucy Liu and some British guy. And it was like, is this the wire? Because they're in the yard and they're talking and like everyone who was ever on the wire is in this scene. Like it was, it was really, it's really weird. But Sherlock Holmes famously from Baltimore. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and obviously post, post the wire, Idris Elba appeared in Luther. And yeah. a lot yes. of his core audience was American, had yeah. no idea that he was British. So yeah. the right. extent to which a black British actor can forge their identity on screen yeah. mm-hmm. and give away so little of themselves yeah. is interesting. Absolutely. Really fascinating. I mean, there's there's a whole section of my book about method acting, which is about James Baldwin's experience with the actor studio and, and with Lee Strasberg. And he ends up really rejecting a lot of the central tenets of method acting. And, and specifically, it's what he understood to be its universalization of a particularly white idea about not just psychology, but uh, the relationship between psychology and politics. Right. And so he ended up really rejecting. Um, yeah, you, end up in, you end up in kind of generalization city don't yeah. you when it comes to you can the, the human the human element yes you know, when in exactly. fact it certainly isn't yeah but you, you a minute ago you mentioned Jared Leto mm-hmm. and if that's how you say his name and that's how um how do you say his name Le- Leto, Leto. Leto. <laughs> oh, yeah. okay sorry um, to interrupt you <laughs> ju- ju- just how how that this kind of method idea has increasingly kind of commingled with marketing mm. absolutely mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. oh absolutely and, it's kind of a bastardized version of authenticity, which if you look at the whole Suicide Squad fiasco. Right. But that's yeah. always been there, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that gets, you know, mm-hmm. James Dean, right? This is a moment in which uh, star magazines are becoming a dominant way that movie studios market their stars, right? And what is in star magazines? but uh, stories about actors' private lives, right? And who they really are. And it's no coincidence that this arrives at the same moment as actors who are actually supposed to be mining their private lives, their inner um, psyches, you know, right. for their roles. So I think it's deeply tied to certainly the rise of, of method acting or an idea of method acting as a dominant form of film performance is definitely tied to, has always right. been tied to its marketability. Yeah. 
Yeah. Precisely the same for The Revenant, which is an interesting oh, um, spin <laughs> on kind of what you were saying, because yeah. frankly, DiCaprio has no time to really act because he's he's kind of dying out there. <laughs> yeah. So you're, there's a kind of documentary intensity to mm. that film. Obviously, he was rewarded for it, you know, by, yeah. by the Academy, finally. But... Um, because that's the only way that we know what's good or bad. Well, it's, it precisely. <laughs> extreme you know. performance. Yeah, it, very yeah. extreme, but also yeah. a very kind of minimal performance mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. he didn't really have anything to, mm-hmm. to say or No, because he's, what is he he's reacting against his surroundings. Right. That's yeah. what he's playing against. Right. And he has to like somehow outperform the harsh weather around him. So it's like what he's doing has to be somehow bigger than the vast plains of... Uh, of Alaska, you know? Right, but it's also, I mean, it, it, couldn't we also see it in the line of a tradition of rewarding actors for extreme physical stress? Oh, totally. Right? Like, but then Charlie's also, but, there on, yeah. you know? Like, like sort of this idea that what we actually want from mainstream movie actors is for them to undergo, like, uh, literal, uh, you know, physical turmoil. Yeah. Or transformation, right? But in some way that it has to be physically hard. That we sort of find yeah. satisfying to watch, mm-hmm. you know. There's, there's yeah, a transformation, which is, which is one thing, which is, you yeah. know, the De Niro thing that I mentioned. Where, or or uh, another Oscar winner, Matthew McConaughey for Dallas yes. Buyers Club. Right. Or Christian Bale in The Machinist. Mm-hmm. What's, what unites all of these? <laughs> Very, yeah. very masculine figures. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it seems like a very kind of male mm. male kind of thing to do this um, and to be rewarded for it too. Although Charlie's Theron, Jennifer Aniston, right? We also reward women Which was who, the Jennifer Aniston one? Um, okay, was cake? it cake? Cake. cake. Yeah. Yes, she got fat for cake. <laughs> but she's not even fat though. I know. Like, but that's that, was the, the that was the way it was, you know. That always annoys me yeah. where it's like, oh, so Nicole Kidman puts on like the ugly nose, quote right. unquote, and then now she's a, we can finally see what a brilliant actress she is. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think the transformation is one thing, but I just think to go back to DiCaprio, that, yeah. that kind of severe physical punishment. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. That seemed, I mean, I might be missing some other references in the past, but for a mainstream film that is, you know, marketed to hell by the distribution company. Yes. Academy Award winner, blockbuster. That seemed like something I'd not quite seen before. Mm. The extent to which a big star was put through. I don't know if I'm missing something obvious, and well, I'm sure. De-, De Niro messed up his teeth again. Right. Yeah. Right. Because that, that was that was that's what got me. It wasn't that he just like gained weight. That he literally was like, finally, I can get like nice teeth, and then no, take them out. I have to do it for him to play Jake LaMotta. <laughs> there are there are sort of other other examples, maybe not quite as spectacular, you know. But it is interesting, even. So Michael B. Jordan is one of the actors I talk about, you know, and he, the fact that he did his own boxing in Creed was right. really touted, right, as, you know, something that spoke to the authenticity of his performance. I mean, I can't help but feel like there's a masochistic wish fulfillment in all this, that we want to see these, our beautiful idols be, you know, beaten up and uh, shit on, you know, that mm-hmm. there's something sad aside. Yeah. <laughs> I guess so. I guess the industry so. goes kaput. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's also, it's all, there's also wish fulfillment in the other direction, right? Like if Nicole Kidman can just change her nose and look like that maybe you know if I change my nose I look like Nicole Kidman right so there's this kind of there's this interaction I think between fantasies about movie stars and our desire to see them physically transformed or fucked up or whatever you know whatever is right but it's funny to note speaking of uh actors gaining weight losing weight to be prestigious Jared Leto to play Mark David Chapman gained a ton of weight he would wake up in the middle of the night and drink pancake batter Nobody remembers that movie now. <laughs> you stay performance, you forgot about that movie. You know what I mean? That's it's like, like when it doesn't work. Right, exactly. The, and so it's that mm-hmm. weird thing where, again, it's like this this idea of torture and dedication. Because I think also people don't think of acting, you know, they think of it as a frivolous thing, as a mm-hmm. serious thing, mm-hmm. as, an, as an unserious mm-hmm. thing. And then mm-hmm. to introduce this element to it, 
gives it a validity or like, mm-hmm. okay, well, you know, you live in a million dollar mansion, but you know, you were crawling around without any pants on in the middle of Alaska. And mm-hmm. so now maybe mm-hmm. I could have a little, you know, maybe it's not fruity to, mm-hmm. to swan around, pretend you're someone else. You mm-hmm. know? Climb inside a horse. Well, okay. <laughs> right. I mean, just like that Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, I, I think it's like, just want to highlight the fact that you said fruity, right? Because there's a huge gender politic going on yes. here, right? About what counts as masculine in performance. And there is, of course, always an association of between performance and femininity. I mean, this mm-hmm. is, goes back a long time, right? So what do male actors have to do in order to convince the world that they're not effeminate, right? Mm-hmm. This is, I mean, one thing they might have to do is, is you know, crawl through Alaska or whatever. Yeah. Well, but, there's a lot of anxiety around performance, right? I mean, yeah. this gets back to what we started talking about at the beginning of this conversation, right? Like that especially in this moment where we have the sneaking suspicion that not only are we always performing, which we already knew, but we're always performing for various cameras, <laughs> right? For if not our, our phones, for the security cameras that surround us at all times, mm-hmm. right? So I think there's a lot of, there's, there's a tremendous anxiety and ambivalence around this that we all feel. And a lot of those anxieties, of course, relate to gender and sexual presentation, as well as all different forms of how our bodies uh, appear to others. And, you know, so I think that we often take these forms of anxieties out on actors and how we talk about actors is often really revealing. Mm-hmm. With the min- Minimalism thing, yeah. Um, which again, you mentioned Michael B. Jordan giving mm-hmm. these very kind of miniature internal performances yeah. in, in Fruitvale Station, which is a small independent film, mm-hmm. and Creed, which is a big kind of he, he's kind of anti-slice Stallone from, yeah. from the, the early Rocky films. Yeah. Right. You know, we talk of acting styles, but it so much depends on the individual actor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I think you need to feel deeply that the actor has got something going on up here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't want to throw too much shade on Ryan Gosling, for example, but when he tries to do the internal kind of brooding, kind of, I just get the feeling mm-hmm. there's nothing going on up mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. And whereas Oscar Isaac is another person you mentioned, Michael B. Jordan, mm-hmm. there's a real obvious intelligence going on and you get mm-hmm. the feeling that they're so in into... The performance, whether that's that they've been well directed, whether they've workshopped hard with that and whether they've taken it down through rehearsals, they've started up here and mm-hmm. come down. I think you just need to feel that the actor has really got some connection going on mm-hmm. with the script mm-hmm. and is intelligent. Mm-hmm. This is something that I notice in a lot of these performances that is really different from blank or neutral or what sometimes is looks like amateurish acting um, that you see elsewhere. I do think that there is a layered psychology being communicated, right? Mm-hmm. This, you know, what you said, there's a lot going on out there. I think, I think what we're experiencing as that is a kind of layering, you know, so it's actually not, it's, it doesn't feel simple or one note, even if Jennifer Lawrence's face doesn't really move, right? There, we get a sense of a layering, even if it's a different kind of layering than the one we might associate with like Freudian psychology, but that there are, you know, there are multiple, multiple motivations, multiple thoughts, whatever it may be inside. And that's why acting so hard to write about. Yeah. You know, I've, I've struggled in the past with you know, you kind of chuck a couple of adjectives in. It's a yes. stunning performance. Or right. Whatever. It's <laughs> like, like editing in a way, yeah. you know, I think it's hard to write about because if a film's really shit and you, you criticize the editing, what you might not know is if the editor hadn't brought their A game, the film could have been 10 times worse. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> you know, exactly. The, the, ed- the editor could have saved the movie right. yeah. from being even worse than it was. Well, right. I think that's true of Suicide Squad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, actually, yeah, yeah. I actually really honestly believe that's an instance where it's like, 
could you imagine if they didn't really bring in professionals on this? Yeah. But anyway. Mm. Sometimes when, when we when we write about acting and editing yeah. in movies and talk about it in slightly casual, adjectival terms, yeah. totally. it's difficult. And I'm, yeah. you know, we're having yeah. this conversation and you talk about layering. It's like, how, how to unpick that? It's right. really hard. Yeah, it's, it's, it's perhaps even harder to talk about acting than it is to talk about any other part of the film object, right? Because the whole point is that there's no clear line between what we think of as a, a, a real life being, <laughs> you know, interacting in the world and what we're seeing on the screen. It's very difficult to pick out the aesthetics of acting and to decide what it means to talk about acting in terms of form. These are really challenging things. I mean, what I do sort of not instead, but in light of these challenges, right, is obviously to talk about culture, right? That's why I mm -hmm. think it's so important to talk about, you know, the cultural context, right? We started talking about medial others, right? How, how other forms of performance and other media affect how we, how we're understanding film acting. But that, I mean, these are all, these are all, this, all of which is just to say, absolutely, it's incredibly difficult. How do you feel about Adam Driver? Um, can you say more about why you asked? The, the, the reason I ask is because he, you know, there are actors who you praise for their kind of shape-shifting abilities or mm -hmm. being able to quote-unquote disappear into a role. Mm -hmm. And there are actors who you, who you respond to because they have a very particular odd, cap, sometimes capital O, odd mm -hmm. style. Mm -hmm. I've mm -hmm. seen Adam Driver in a few things mm -hmm. and he does seem to bring this kind of same strange speech pattern um it's kind of loping physical quality and yeah. these long strange pauses and yeah. you know there's old the old um possibly apocryphal story of christopher walken the first thing he does with the script is take out all the punctuation <laughs> i get a similar vibe from from hmm. adam driver and he seems to be someone you know he got his start i believe in in girls mm -hmm. he seems mm -hmm. very of of this moment mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you, you know talking about culture he's yeah. somebody who's yeah. achieved his stardom through through multiple channels through kind of Definitely. long you know a long-term cable show and film and he's done kind of blockbusters and independent films he's coming up in uh, Patterson mm -hmm. Jim yeah. Jarmusch's film but yeah he's there seems to be a consistency a, a minimalism mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. maybe a studied minimalism mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. him and I just wondered if either of you had any strong feelings mm -hmm. on him because I can't work out what I think I yeah sometimes I think this guy's terrible and yeah then sometimes yeah. oh he's he's great uh mm -hmm. there's I think we have a hand up in the terrible corner uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no please I haven't seen him in enough stuff where I would be like the, I think the last thing I saw him in was This Is Where I Leave You, which is a horrible film. And so it's sort of like the, the experience of watching that. It's hard to take apart anything except for how bad it was. Mm -hmm. Like, I really, I just, it's like such a, and he, and he, it's funny because he, in that film, he plays sort of, I, I would say sort of against type where he's like a, a millennial idiot where he's just sort of like a party guy who has Isn't an old girlfriend. Is that his type though? Isn't that like sort but, of his type? But, but like a bigger, it was sort of like it okay. had a bigness about it. Everything about that movie was kind of big. He he is definitely like, he's kind of playing the role as if he was like a Jonah Hill sort of a type where it's mm. like dumb, swagger, millennial, millennial idiot, got an older hot girlfriend. It didn't feel like him, him. And so maybe in that sense, it was good. <laughs> well, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, with with an actor like... Adam Driver. So, so right. When, when you ask me the question, how I feel about Adam Driver, my first instinct is to say, well, you know, what, what is behind a cert, our interest in Adam Driver as a persona? Right. And it right. seems like a lot that's behind it is an idea about millennials, right. Or about, about his generation, whatever girls represents, what he represents mm -hmm. on girls. Right. So I think that 
when we're talking about an actor like that who seems to really personify a certain uh, a certain generational trope or type, a lot of what we're looking at when we watch that person perform is what we might call like intertextual, right? We're like looking at Adam Driver uh, with the knowledge of his character on Girls, with our senses of what that means in the culture, you know, with our with our ideas about millennials, about the kind of trope that he is personifying for us. And you wrote about Kristen Stewart too. Yes, yes. right. She's another one. Yeah, the, yeah, the kind yeah, of yeah. ultimate millennial star. Yeah, she interests me a lot. I, w- I was originally going to write more about her, but then there was that fantastic cover story in um, the summer issue of, of Film Comment about her. Um, but I think she's really, really interesting in this in this way too. She, though, seems to be someone in contrast to Adam Driver who is actively re- resisting her typification, right? She seems to be deliberately taking on projects that would challenge you know, ideas about her as representing a generation. She's sort of the, you know, after Twilight, this seems like mm-hmm. she's trying to throw off that mantle of whatever that might be for U.S. culture today. Right. Well, Robert Pattinson, too. And I mean, mm. I would, too. Jesus. <laughs> Those <Yeah>. movies. <laughs> yeah. That whole franchise, very conservative. But anyway. Yeah. So weird and interesting. I mean, I watched Twilight right around the time I was watching the whole Hunger Games thing and it, it's just it's like I, you know I just them really fascinating both similar and different in yeah. lots of ways um, but 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 specifically interesting around this this the subject of performance or expression mm-hmm. right the whole thing in the first Twilight the whole reason that what, what's his name Edward Edward likes her right is because he can't read her thoughts do you remember this <laughs> yes this is so interesting so so like he can read anyone's thoughts because he's a vampire and I guess vampires can do that but he can't can't read Bella's, Bella's, Kristen Stewart's character. And that's why he's interested in her. You know, and okay, so it's kind of obvious this could be an allegory for why we like Kristen Stewart in those movies, right? right? We can't read her thoughts. There's some kind of inscrutability that feels um, exciting to us and about that. Right. It's nice when other directors kind of see, see equality in somebody. Yeah. And, tra- you know, kind of transfer that into a different context. I, obviously, Cronenberg's seen something in... Patterson, Pat, yes. Robert Pattinson, excuse me, not yes. the, the wonderful critic Michael Pattinson. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hi, Michael. Um, uh, in things like Cosmopolis and yes. Maps to the Stars, which I quite liked. No, I loved both of those I think, movies. I think they're both I... really good films. And I think oh, absolutely. there's this kind of creepiness to him <laughs> that is so well suited to that authorial style mm-hmm. yeah. and that inscrutability. Mm. Well, I think Cosmopolis and Maps to the Stars are their cousins or they're like one is the dark twin of the other where he's totally perfectly honing in on the financial industry in New York in this bizarre way. And then the, you know, masses of stars, it's, it's not a Hollywood satire. And it really annoys me when people are like, it's a bad satire. And I'm like, it's not trying to be that. It's like a, it's like a fucked up ghost story. It's really weird. I, yes. I, I don't think people like I read reviews of it and people were this. really dismissive of it. Oh, totally. And uh, then you try to engage with them. And they're like, uh, uh, no, it's just bad. And it's like, well, I think even the way, the way that Robert Pattinson's skin looks in both of these movies and Mia Wasikowska's skin. And it's just like, you think of how you think of Hollywood, everyone's tan. And these are these utterly crepuscular people. who are just it's like, like um, very... David Bowie and the, the man who fell to earth. Exactly. Kind of vibe. That, yeah. that otherworldly quality. Yeah. And it's just um, like the, the whole very familiar milieu changes instantly. With Cosmopolis, it's like there's just something about the way that his limo looks. It looks like he's in a sarcophagus, like he's going down like the River Styx or the River Nile, like he's going to hell. Like, And that's sort of what happens in the film. And it, it, there's something so deathly about 
him in both of those films that it, I don't know I think it's super interesting and it makes me upset that people want to well, write them off but it's <laughs> intensified by to go back to what you were talking about how you can't talk about acting without talking about culture mm-hmm. yeah. both of those roles and a lot of what Kristen Stewart has done recently very much intensified by what we know about where they've come from mm-hmm. and yes. by how mm-hmm. we how we interact with, with celebrity and, yeah. and, and gossip which mm-hmm. has changed yeah it's become a part of everyday life rather than something that you might look at on a on a magazine mm. on a shelf mm. yeah it's there in in the ether if you mm. kind of right on and twitter or facebook or right. and then there are people who exist just to sort of create gossip like the kardashians i would say they say though oh they have no skill and it's like well that's their one skill the business people <laughs> yeah mean, exactly <laughs> you can't you can't say that about someone who's got more money than you'll ever have <laughs> like you know yeah. They've well, obviously got something. Yeah, there, there was not I just the butts. Yeah, there was an article in the Times <laughs> yesterday about the celebrity Z list. Right. Know if you saw this. Yes. I think what's <laughs> interesting about this, though, is you know, if if what we're seeing is this kind of proliferation of different forms of on-camera performance, right? Is is to think about you know, if before the digital era, you know, we could say maybe there were two or three genres of performance that uh, film actors had to engage in. You know, they had to be on screen, of course, they had to be, you know, put on a performance in interviews. And then they also had to, you know, perhaps do this sort of performance of authenticity, like when, I don't know, Marlon Brando would like go to Tahiti and take photos or whatever. You know, yeah. there, there was a, there was maybe three genre realms in which they had to construct discrete performance forms. Today, there might be more like 20. Because we have this dispersal and proliferation of media, what we have are a whole bunch of different kinds of on-screen performance or on-camera performance that stars have to negotiate in Mm -hmm. different ways, right? So it's a little bit of a cliche at this point, right, to say that authenticity is dead. You know, we, we, we don't, uh, we, we, we no longer, you know, have a, a, a self that is separate from how we, you know, present that self to the world. Um, but I guess how I would inflect that would be to say, you know, well, we have a whole bunch of different modes in which we present ourselves and some of them still to us feel more authentic than others. And like, you know, sorting out which of them feel authentic to us and why is actually a really interesting question. Mm-hmm. That makes any sense. I feel like that was a rambling. No, it's, no. no, I see what you're saying. Yeah. And it's funny. I've often found there's a disjunction between people who say that, oh, this performance was so moving mm-hmm. and actually, in fact, not really moved by it, but mm. they're saying it's moving and authentic yeah. because it looks like an authentic portrayal of grief yeah. or something. Yeah. Whereas I find that the performances that have tended to kind of knock me out a kind of to do with their own emotional truth, which is yeah. rooted in that character, mm-hmm. who might act in a way of a person that I've never met or have never mm-hmm. encountered. Mm-hmm. So that kind of idea of internal logic mm-hmm. of, of a performance. Mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. thinking of something like Paris, yeah, Texas. Who are you like of? I don't know what, um, wow. but what Harry Dean Stanton mm-hmm. and Dean Stockwell, That's, he is such a great and actor. Aura Clement, what they all do in that film is very kind of subtle and interior. Yeah, and it sets me off every time. It mm-hmm. doesn't really subscribe to any given technique of acting i suppose mm. you know and harry dean stanton someone that for a very long time has been kind of doing his own thing mm-hmm. oh yeah he's his own genre but i yeah. think he was i mean correct me if i'm wrong i think he was trained by uh one of the stanislavski based teachers oh really not, yeah yeah, yeah. I, I i hope i'm not misremembering but i think i think he that's was. interesting yeah I mean, right, another uh, just a, a small point to make about that is, you know, what we think of as the aesthetic of method acting is actually based on a very small number of performers, you know, and right. the iconization of those mm. performers. I'm probably guilty of being quite lazy in my thinking about that. Yeah. Kind of growing up reading certain magazines 
that have kind of canonized a certain method group. Yeah, so, or, you right. Know, you've got your four or five and you've got your Dustin Hoffman and right. Larry yeah. Olivier and, you know, the, the kind of marathon man thing. Right, exactly. It's acting, darling, you know, right. that kind of... <laughs> That, that idea. So, yeah, it's interesting to hear you say that about Harry yeah. and Stanton because I had no idea. There's mm-hmm. so many actors, actually, who studied with these teachers, you know, so many actors from that era who we would never associate with the kind of aesthetic we think of as method acting, right? And this really interests me, too. This is sort of what my book about method acting deals with a lot is, you know, why do we think about what led to us thinking of method acting as being um, this certain thing that we now think of it as, right? This extreme performance, extreme transformation, big emotion, right? Like, why do we think of it that way? What led to us um, seeing it that way? In its original conception, right, the idea was just to have a methodology for training actors, right? right? And so a lot of what these early method teachers quote-unquote method teachers say is, you know, we're just codifying what great actors have always done. Mm-hmm. And here is the technique that, you know, that we've developed from Stanislavski's ideas about how to rehearse and and train actors for ensemble acting. We've just adapted these for our particular setting. But it wasn't meant to be a whole new aesthetic at all, actually. It was just meant to be good acting, mm-hmm. a way of teaching good acting. I suppose it's become one of those words like, punk mm-hmm. which has I many different true. meanings yeah. to, to many different people yeah we've talked a lot about drama yeah I think we haven't talked about comedy at all that's mm. right and i've been thinking about kind of what what eddie murphy does gene in, wilder in the nutty professor or gene wilder. yeah yeah <laughs> but that idea of you know playing multiple different characters in a in a film and mm-hmm. yeah. still retaining a core of personality but yeah. embodying five or six different characters Eddie, I think Eddie Murphy's kind of underrated for his latest stuff. Mm-hmm. Everyone talks about, you know, every, we all know 48 Hours is great and Beverly Hills Cop and so on. But some of the latest stuff he's done is still technically incredible, mm. even if the scripts aren't quite up to it, mm. to say the least, in, in certain cases. Um, but yeah, I, maybe we could talk about comedy a little. Yeah. yeah. No, I think talking about different ways that people sort of come through the system and then get spat out into Hollywood and then mm-hmm. onto the world at large, thinking of things like, Second City or UCB have really, they have, again, they have these methodologies for how to build a scene, how to, mm-hmm. you know, if this is true, then this is, you know, what else is true? And like the yes anding and that sort of building a character or, or the game, or I, I mean, I don't have to get into that, but it, it is, it is fascinating, like how somebody like Will Ferrell, seeing how his performances have evolved over the years and how his bigness and i mean or or i've been thinking of something like anchorman where he was very (laughs) like he did like really like he really latched on to something this unique weird style of masculinity and he just ran with it and deconstructing it while embodying it yeah love him i mean comedy (laughs) it's really interesting to think about comedy one of my one of my favorite actor studio films is baby doll i don't know if you guys Uh, have ever seen baby doll uh so it's a it's a early Ilya kazan uh tennessee williams collaboration starring carol baker carl malden and eli wallach Mm -hmm. um who are three you know actor studio stalwart actors um who are actually three of my favorite actor studio actors from that particular moment you know it's a very it's a very dark comedy you know, the psychological style associated with the actor's studio was actually really compelling in a lot of these, uh, I would say less, you know, less physical, more psychological comedies, if you might, if you, if, if we can call them that. Not the musical kind. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. The wordplay kind. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, although, yeah, although, you know, again, it's like Gene Wilder was uh, was an early member of the Actors Studio. You know, a lot, mm-hmm. of, a lot of actors who you wouldn't think of as partaking in what we think of as a method style did actually train in, in some version of what we know as method acting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would also say someone who embodies sort of the aesthetic that you, you describe in your article, definitely not popular outside of comedies James Franco Mm. where he is very much like so much of his comedic persona it's kind of one note but again it's very much predicated on like withholding or kind of being Mm. too cool like Mm. I think of him you know freaks and geeks or um Mm. what they all kind of blur together because he's kind of doing the same thing at all of them but yeah it's it's like he's it's like he's in on a joke Oh, yeah. That, that he hasn't told anyone, but yeah. he's very amused by it. Yeah. Right. And then something like when he's in, when he's in Spring Breakers and that performance is hilarious and it's completely different. Like, mm. I think, and I think. What was the thing that he was, re- I thought he was really funny in? Um, Pineapple this Express? Is, this is the end. Oh, this is the end. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and he's, he's another one of those people who's just this kind of the intertextuality of his public persona. Right. It's completely inescapable from. Seeing him on screen by this point. Yeah. Right. Which right. is annoying sometimes. Yeah. And then sometimes it really works. Yeah. <laughs> like, right. Right. Gia LeBeouf is on that track too. Do you remember when he did mm. that? When he sat in the Oh yeah. The cinema downtown. Yeah, of course. And filmed himself. Yeah. That I yes. mean that that's kind of a Right. Now these actors sort of want to be performance artists. It's yeah. interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it I was mean, just his face. It was like yeah. Shirin. It was it Kirastomi no. via Shia LeBeouf. I think, I mean, what, one thing that this conversation makes me think about is, you know, from the Middle Ages and even before, right, you can trace the idea that actors are in some way, of course, worthy of being made fun of, like worthy of mockery because they, you know, do this ridiculous thing of acting not themselves, um, but also that they're sort of like holy fools, right, that, mm-hmm. that actors somehow, you know, have this kind of spiritual knowledge that the rest of us may not possess. And, and I think that, you know, this, a lot of the ways that we talk about actors I think straddle that line between making fun of them for their pretensions, right, or their their efforts to be um, less foolish than they are, and also the sort of idea that they have a, a certain kind of um, I don't know a certain kind of kind of spiritual stature. Oh, uh, very much so. Yeah. There's no doubt that that kind of reading around an actor and how they put themselves across has yeah. an impact. When you see actors who are t- terminally self serious and uh, respond in a non-humble way to being told that their work is so brave. You know, that, that word comes up a lot as a brave performance. Right. Like, no, it wasn't. It was, you were you're acting. Right. You were on a set. You were on every- a set. You know, you had a trailer. Do you know what I mean? Like, come on. Yeah. And and that that's something that kind of comes up over and over again. So I think how actors, you know, portray themselves in mm-hmm. public mm-hmm. definitely has an impact. Yeah. Definitely. Although, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I totally see what you're saying on one hand about you know, acting not, at least in, in these mainstream films, you know, not really being what we would call brave. On the other hand, you know, there is, and and I actually trained as an actor myself, you know, there is something extremely vulnerable about any kind of performance, even if you're, you know, a, a star, that I think we should, you know, take account of, right? I mean, all art, of course, has vulnerability you know, built into it. You are putting something out into the world for people to critique, right? But when it's your body, <laughs> there's an added vulnerability and your emotions and your, you know, expressions. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, this is maybe one reason why actors often, you know, appear so ridiculous in public is because there's this kind of insecurity and tension and vulnerability around their 
putting themselves out there like that. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and I mean, you know, the freedom with which you can discuss any part of an actor's body or yeah. just what people say about Jonah Hill is appalling to me, but they're not going to stop saying it right. because he keeps putting himself out there sort of for that abuse. But it's, you know, in many cases, it's worth it because he right. gives he, you know, whatever, regardless of how much he weighs, he gives in a fucking awesome performance. I mean, I didn't like War Dogs, but he still gives a really good <laughs> performance in that. And it was like it made something that was fundamentally unbearable a little bit more bearable, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. but. As a one-time child actor. Ah, yes. Oh. It comes out, That's finally. <laughs> from, this is my last ever appearance on the, on the podcast. <laughs> no, I mean, as someone who sat, sat in a trader in the desert for, you know, eight hours <laughs> a day. What, and not what done did anything. you do? Oh, it was, um, it was a, a reimagining of the Cleopatra story by the director Frank Rodham of Quadrophenia fame. Amazing. It was an interesting match for the subject matter. <laughs> yeah. And it involved a... A couple of weeks in, in Morocco, in wow. the middle of the Sahara Desert. This was when I was 13. When you were 13, wow. I was playing a 12-year-old, so even then I had range. <laughs> um, and, you know, it was it was fairly unpleasant, to be honest, you know, yeah. um, for, for many, many reasons. But, yeah. again, I just, I think that I think you make very good points about it being, when you're a public figure, putting yourself out there and opening yourself up to scrutiny and... and you know, a, potentially alienating a fan base. Like if you've got mm -hmm. a very conservative fan base and you decide to do something slightly left field, you could, like that, lose yeah. an entire portion of your fan base. But I just, I think sometimes acting is spoken of in such elevated, verified terms. Absolutely. Um, and I think the actors I respond to quite well are the ones that publicly, you know, yeah, acknowledge that course. it's not the be all and end all. Yeah. And, of course. Yeah. But I, t I of course. take both your points. So what you say about Jonah Hill and some of the treatment he gets is really awful, isn't it? Yeah. I've been to junkets where people will ask him to his face. Shit like that. And it's like, how, you know, how, again, because, it, it, you know, again, this idea that you talk about male performers in a certain way and female performers in another way. And just like how it, we could be completely unacceptable to approach a female actress like that. But, you know. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we feel so <laughs> passionately about actors. We love them and we hate them. And it's just really interesting to me that, you know, this, this ubiquitous passion, um, about actors, you know, hasn't necessarily translated into a strong critical vocabulary for talking about them. Right. Oh, yeah. Like we, you know, we're still at least, you know, from what I've seen, we're still, you know, just the beginning of developing, you know, ways of articulating what actors are doing and mm. how it relates to the works of art works of art the around desires them, you know? a big part of it like if you oh, find yeah. someone really attractive oh totally just, even if you hate the film you know you just want to watch this person on screen and yeah. sometimes it goes beyond words as a writer you know i have to try yeah. sometimes yeah. I'm not talking about the desire yeah. still <laughs> just um <laughs> let, may i clarify no um, i mean this okay this is so interesting to me um there's a there's a theater scholar i really like named nicholas Rideout. he 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 writes about modern acting and the constant danger and attraction to the potential erotic exploitation in the relationship between the actor and the spectator right so he writes about you know he sort of reads theater theory from uh 
the Enlightenment forward, actually, in this way. But he argues that, you know, always in that relationship between actor and spectator, there is a danger, a promise of some kind of erotic exploitation, right? Be it that the spectator is going to, in some ways, you know, be turned on by the performance, right? That uh, the performer is in some ways, uh, you know, getting close to prostitution in his mm-hmm. or her, you know, performance, right? Because there's some kind of, of, of display of the body, you know, for consumption, right? That is that gets us close to, you know, certain kinds of sex work. So, so this is, you know, this is actually totally to the point, I think, you know, mm-hmm. in how we, in our passion and sometimes, you know, loathing for actors, right? That we have these ambivalent feelings. Tense sexual about, yeah. loathing. <laughs> yeah, that we have these ambivalent feelings about the idea no, that, right. they, that they are, you know, er- erotically available to us in some way. With all the ethical problems that that, yeah. <laughs> I just I miss hammy acting. By the way, yeah, I just wish there was more of it. I've always really? found it hysterical. Yeah, just just because you know on on theatre on stage you have to project, right? Yeah. But on film, it's like it's okay. We've got mics, so we can hear you. <laughs> so that's why I love that kind of on Al Pacino's that kind of number one. Some of the stuff that he he's done. You yeah. like that? You like his really handy over the top stuff? stuff like Scarface. I just love it. Right. And I, I can't really mount it. A... What about the Devil's Advocate? Will you go that far? Oh, <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> because oh for my me... god, the last ten minutes of that yeah. movie, I just want to watch him over and over again. He's so over it's the top. He's just so over the top, and it's like it's <laughs> so artificial and so yeah. you know yeah. you just know you're watching. It's Al Pacino. He's going to give it to you 110. Right. Vanity. And that's what he's doing. My favorite sin. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> So it's, and and what, whatever he was doing, his scent of a woman, he's screaming. <laughs> See, you just, just you screaming want camp. at people. You want camp to come back I, in acting. Yeah, but just I mean, because that is pure. That is camp. The yeah. devil's advocate. That performance. Yeah, yeah. scent of a woman just, just yeah. spitting in Chris O'Donnell's <laughs> face. Just screaming oh, yeah. and shouting and no, and I, thudding and, around. And no, and that's why I brought up like reality TV before because yeah. that's where people get it from. But also, it's like I would rather have that shit is so boring. Mm. Like it's really, it's like the because I mean, it's it's always a thing where it's like, oh, you know, Americans don't want to watch movies with subtitles. Like you never have an Eric Romare film in America. You know, like no one would ever want to watch that. But really, that's kind of what these things are. Where it's just like people are just talking. And kind of doing nothing. You're talking about reality TV. Reality yeah, TV. Yeah. And then and then and then somebody gets drunk, and then it's like a big, you know, they get in a big fight and scream and pull the tablecloth off, and it's just really boring. If there was just like a little bit more of a narrative, if it was something like you know as ridiculous as like a son of a woman, then yeah, I would uh, bring that back. You know, like like Anthony <laughs> Hopkins. Reality TV shows actual plots. Yeah. Like instead of pretending. Like about that- the devil. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That, that was one of my. That was actually one of my. Fa- when I was when I was a kid, I would like against against my family's wishes, I would watch Days of Our Lives, the uh, plot with Marlena and the devil being possessed by the devil. Loved that. Bring it back. <laughs> More possession. <laughs> On daytime television. Anyway. It's interesting that you Sold say that. a few that, problems here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> it's okay. So did you guys, I'm sure, saw uh, Robert Greene's actress, the film actress? I did. Okay. Yes. So, you know, I, I bring this up because we're talking about hammy acting and, and, you know, you guys are saying, we love it, you know, bring it back. Um, I think, you know, that film is sort of about the dangers of appearing to perform, right? As mm-hmm. in the ways that that we're, I think we're talking about quote unquote hammy acting, right? It's the, what I hear you guys saying is that there's kind of a there's a um, a love for the act of performing in some of that late Pacino that's really refreshing and kind of exciting. You know, I amusing and, am, and amusing, amusing yeah, in yeah, yeah. that the people around him 
no one can do anything about it. Yeah. The director <laughs> can't, his co-stars, they yeah. can't say to him, Al, can you tone it down a bit, mate? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they yeah, can't yeah, do yeah. shit. Yeah. That's kind of what I love about it. Yeah, no, Sorry I just, to cut no, you okay, off there. That's okay. Yeah. No, the, no, 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 go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say, I love the idea of someone just being very upset and just being like waking up and being like, oh, I have to just go on set and not say anything yeah, again. again. Like yeah. Hank Azaria in Heat. Yes, like, exactly. When, you, when just, you see his face after he's, uh, he's got a great ass. <laughs> and you just see his face. He's like, fucking hell, man. <laughs> You were saying, no, I'm sorry. That's okay, that's okay, that's okay. <laughs> so, no, but the reason I bring up Actress, right, is that, um, you know, in the critical response to that film, that amazing actress, you know, Brandy Burr was really attacked for the moments that she seems like she's enjoying performing her life, right? So I think, I think some of the questions that you're raising about reality TV and this sort of will to perform are very smartly articulated by that film, although I found a lot of the critical response really gendered and really problematic because mm. of that. You know, because what I what I heard in that was, you know, we want this woman to perform for us, but she can't perform too much. Otherwise, she's, you know, she's fake or she's uh, unethical. And that was, you know, some of the things that people were saying. Mm-hmm. So I think it's interesting, you know, on the one hand, okay, so we love a certain kind of hammy acting. You know, on the other hand, there's once you evince a sort of desire to be seen, you open yourself up to a lot of bile you know about about that yeah that that performance goes down to you know how you conduct yourself unfortunately on 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 social media Mm. you Mm. know how how many how do you present yourself you have Mm -hmm. an online persona once once you've crafted that persona yeah if you try and kind of row back on it or change it whatever you know that goes back to the layers thing yeah so it's it's interesting you know with films like actress where you're explicitly tackling that on screen within a framework yeah. Mm. Opening night, of course, the great Cassavetes film is also about this, oh, right? Yes. Like what, you know, I mean, that that is, you know, Jenna Rollins' performance in that film is, I, I read it as being all about, um, you know, what's allowed of, of, of actresses, right? Like, like how much, uh, how far can they go <laughs> how before they take something that is predicated on them being a certain way off the rails, right? Mm-hmm. And like what happens then? You know, when does like subversion you know, of a script become a, you know, transformation. Right. It's a really interesting question. You know, it's, it's, I I just find it interesting that you guys mentioned Al Pacino, who of course, right, is, you know, yes, it's hammy acting, but it's a certain kind of very masculinist hammy acting. You know, it's not the kind of quote unquote feminine. No, it's not delicate. Scarface is not delicate work. (laughs) No. It's all, but it's also, but it also, you know, it reads to us as, as having, you know, an aggressiveness that we associate with masculinity that I think is one reason why it's palatable to people in in as much as it is. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of people hate late Al Pacino because I think he's ridiculous, but yeah, it's interesting. Well, Sally, we have to end it there. Oh, but this gosh. was, this was wonderful. But before we close, can we each go around and say a film that we saw recently that we liked? I can go first. Yeah. So I saw Bertrand Bonello's Nocturama, mm-hmm. which was I loved it. I know I pretty much, I feel like everyone else I saw it with it was not into it. I loved it, though, because it's just I, in the way that people sort of want to dismiss Maps of the Stars. It's like not really be a good Hollywood satire. This is a film that it involves a group of young terrorists, but it's really not about terrorism. And I think it's really about it's, it's about being young and like you do something absolutely, utterly amazing and you can't believe you did it. And then what happens in the time after that? And you see that play out basically in real time and it has 
a really superb soundtrack that I just love. Um, I don't know. No one makes uh, movies like Bertrand Vanello. You think it's going to be really controversial when it comes out? <sighs> no. I mean, part of the thing that makes it sort of not about terrorism is that you really don't know what... You, you have a vague sense of what they're protesting against through these bombings, but it's never absolutely 100% clear. But there is a high body count and... I don't know. I don't think it's um, people should get mad about real things. <laughs> That's my my hot tip for somebody who writes about movies uh, for professionally. Get mad about something else. Forget about it. Hey. <laughs> um, I finally saw Nicholas Petzold's uh, wonderful Phoenix. Oh. Um, so to keep it on an acting tip, yeah, sure, as we say in South London, <laughs> um, both Nina Hoss and. Roland Zerfeld, I believe is his name. The, the two leads who both starred together in Barbara. Just very minimal performances at absolutely no... It was like a poker game. But somehow, you know, dramatic, you know, all kind of the, as dramatically riveting as that can be. I never knew what was coming from either of the characters. The ending's absolutely perfect. And that was a great example of just gesture and facial expression. Total control in concert with a very intelligent script and just great direction. Everything, it didn't seem overdetermined or overdone. I just it felt on a complete knife edge and that was a lot down to the performance of the two, the two leads. Mm. Go see Phoenix, it's great. Awesome. Well, I thought of one. Continuing our, our, our Cassavetes um, tip, I recently had the pleasure of seeing Gloria yeah. at uh, Metrograph, followed by a talk back with Jenna Rollins, which was a film I'd actually never seen. It was one of his, n not one of his independent films. It was actually mm -hmm. done for a studio. Um, and I found it extraordinary in all kinds of ways, but especially Jenna Rollins' performance. There are some, there are some moments in that film that just seem, that, 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 are, that are unimaginable without her interpretation of the lines that are completely uh, dependent on this incredible performance that she gives. There's one moment uh, where the character um, shoots into a car full of mobsters and then turns around and there's, you know, her timing is like impeccable and she screams, taxi! <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's like the most, you know, everyone in the theater burst out laughing, but it was also this incredibly moving moment. And, you know, I think she's one of the greatest actors of the 20th century, so I'm happy to close with her. Absolutely. Well, thank you both so much for coming. This was thank excellent. You. Thank you. My pleasure. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold, and edited by Michael Oatmark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years. <laughs> <laughs>